we doing? Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's super kind. You know, it has been an honor and a privilege to uh, be a pastor for a while and to get to be a friend to Dave Hurtado. He really is the real deal. Um, Except for the jersey this morning, not so much with that. Uh, But other than that, just a great man of God that loves the Lord and loves this church. And to be able to be friends with him and see him walk through this journey of ending up here, I'm excited for this church. and I'm excited for him and his family. Like he said a few years ago, we lived together. Uh, Rocky Peak, the church that we served together at, the church I grew up at, is set between the San Fernando and Simi Valley. And at some point, they bought a piece of land that had a house on it. And it was just an old, beaten-up house, and they didn't really know what to do with it. And so they said, well, we have an interns. Let's just let them live there. So... Us interns, we were stoked. We were excited. We had a house to live in. And there was so much unity. It was such a great season where so many of us were pursuing vocational ministry. We get to serve together. We're living together. Great unity. There was also a lot of division because there were a bunch of Giants fans like Dave Hurtado. (laughs) Let's just call it what it is. And so those of us that were Dodger fans, we always had a tough time. And around this time, the Dodgers were, uh, they were struggling And this one particular night, I remember, you know, there's all these Giants fans living there and they're watching the game. And every time I walk in the room, they just make fun of me for being a Dodger fan. Dodgers aren't playing tonight, are they? Because we were nowhere near the playoffs. And I just grew in my frustration. And I remember I just, at one point, go in my room and grab a basket of laundry and I go into the laundry room and they're heckling me and I just close the door of this little laundry room We normally had the door open, and I noticed as I closed the door that there was a power panel on the wall. (laughs) Baseball is a game of moments, and you can feel when those moments are coming. And so in this particular game, I hear a full count, and you hear the phrase, and the pitch, and I hit the switch. Now, because we were all youth interns, everybody goes into this frenzy like we're being pranked. Like something has happened. Our students are pranking us in this moment. They can't believe it happened. So everybody just starts scattering around looking for high school students that have turned the power off. I hear them scattering. I hear them, look, they gotta be here somewhere. I'm in there just gleefully folding my laundry. I turn the light back. I flip the switch back on. Power comes back on. TV comes back on. And they all run back to the TV and just start watching the game. Keep folding my laundry. And the pitch, switch. (laughs) They are literally trying to like pull out blueprints, looking for the main power source of like, where has this gone wrong? They're looking for breakers outside. They don't realize that the problem is in the house. The problem is right here. They're trying to come up with this plan of we got to get an electrician. We got to figure this out. The whole time, it was me. I did a lot of laundry that playoff season. <laughs> did a lot of laundry. I would do anybody's laundry. Happy to help. It's funny, when, when things are going wrong, we tend to look outwards. When things aren't going the way we want them to, we tend to look outward. We tend to look and go, what is wrong with this situation? There must be something out there. It's causing a problem. And often there is, but often the problem is inside of the house. Our desire to look out and to blame something, we can sometimes miss that the problem might, part of the problem might be right here. 
right, in the house. The passage we're going to be looking at is in the book of James this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 1. Turn in your phones or your Bibles to James chapter 1. James is one of these books that just hits you straight up. Doesn't mix words. Just here it is. And in James 1, starting at verse 13, we start this passage that talks about temptation. And it says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the tr- word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Would you pray with me as we look to God's word this morning? Father God, I thank you for your word. Your word, your gospel, the truth that on our own we are sin plagued, but in you we have life. I thank you that your word is living and active. Your spirit inspired these words. And Lord, we make ourselves available to your spirit this morning. Would you instruct us? Would you speak to us? I pray that the hearts of your people here this morning would not be in a defensive posture but in one where we're open to hear from you. Would you speak clearly this morning? We love you. Amen. If you read James 1, 1 through 12, James talks about this idea of of trials. That whole section of the scripture talks about trials that produce endurance. And then here in verse 13, he kind of turns the corner a little bit and begins to talk about temptation, temptation. Now, if you were reading this morning's passage in the Greek, which none of you were doing that, but if you were, you would see this word parosmus. And if you were doing that, please meet me after service. I just want to shake your hand. That's awesome. But those of us who are reading it there, we see this word trials, and then we see this word temptation. This word parosmus is the same word. In verses 1 through 12, it's translated trials, but here it's translated temptation. You see, trials, which is what's being talked about in the verses before this, are intended to produce endurance. Parosmus, that's trying to build endurance, that's a trial. But parosmus, it's intending to draw you into evil, that's temptation. That is temptation. 
And this morning, we're going to talk about temptation. Temptation brings about evil. And there seems to be this core disconnect that James is addressing to those he's writing to. This core disconnect where somehow they've gotten off and how they saw temptation. And he wants to be abundantly clear. He says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. What a huge disconnect. How did they get to this place of disconnect? I think in general, there's this desire that they have, that people have, to blame something on the outside. We want to find something to blame. The problem couldn't be us. It couldn't be our problem. There's got to be something external here. So I think there's that general idea. But these specific people were hearing a lot from the culture that they were surrounded by. These people, the diaspora, were spread out. These Jews were living in a land that was not their own. And they were spread out and they were surrounded by a culture that had a horrible view, horrible view of God. And I use that word God because when they use it, it's a lowercase g. If you've studied or ever read any Greek mythology, we can sum it up simply. Greek mythology is just a hot mess. It is just a total mess because people created characters that they call gods. And these characters are a total mess in their relationships with each other and in their relationship with people. And so here they are culturally spread out, no longer centralized in Israel. They're spread out and they're hearing gods that are just enticing to evil, trying to trick each other. There was also at that point some misguided rabbis some misguided rabbis that presented this idea that God gave you two desires. God gave you a good desire, and these rabbis would say God gave you an evil desire, and that God wants you to choose between those two. So whether it was the culture among the Romans, or whether it was these rabbis, somewhere among these people, they had gotten into their mind that God was tempting them. And James wants to address that straight up. Absolutely not. No. That is a total miss. It says in verse 13, For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. There is nothing in evil that can make an appeal to God. It's got nothing. In Isaiah 6.3, Isaiah says this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. These are what angels are saying in the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy. God is set apart. Perfect. Nothing to do with evil. Do not let the world around you Try to bring God down to your level. Because the world is trying to do that today. It's trying to tell you that you are, you know, God thinks the way maybe you think. It's trying to give you a lesser view of God. And we cannot have that. Scripture says so clearly here. 
Now, whenever I read this passage, I always think of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Jesus being fully God, being tempted in the wilderness. And that word parosmus comes into play here again. You see, we know in Matthew 4, when he was drawn by the Spirit, that the Spirit wanted to demonstrate endurance in Jesus' life. That's what was going on there. That word parosmus is so key to understanding. So when we look at the whole of Scripture, we see that God will have nothing to do with evil. And it's important that we have a right understanding of God and who he is. That is essential. And so this passage seeks to clarify a few few things. It says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The first thing when facing temptation is to understand your flesh. Understand your flesh. When you are facing temptation, understand your flesh. Now, James doesn't mention the devil here. It's not that James doesn't believe in the devil. In chapter four at verse seven, he says this, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So James understands the devil, but he's saying that's not the whole puzzle. You, your flesh is a piece of this puzzle when understanding how to respond to temptation. You have to understand that you have flesh. You have flesh. He's not negating Satan's role. This is not an exhaustive passage about temptation, but it is describing a piece of it that is our flesh, our own flesh. And that's an important thing there. It says in 14, each person, we all have it. Each person, we all have it. And when it says tempted, that word there is continuous. The temptation keeps coming. I can remember being at a men's retreat a few years back. And I remember sitting in this intergenerational circle. I was a younger guy and there was just all the spectrum of ages in this circle. And I remember one person in his middle age saying, you know, I have to be honest with you. I'm kind of in this place where I'm just not experiencing temptation in the same way. I'm just, I don't think I'm being tempted. I think I'm in this season right now of not being tempted. And someone wiser in the group said, oh, friend, you are being tempted. It's just changed a little bit. And you're missing it. If you came in here this morning thinking of the temptations that you struggled with when you were younger and think now, well, I've kind of grown out of that and I'm not, that's just not as much of a challenge and you can't articulate the temptation your flesh brings, you're missing it. Scripture says it's continuous. And it says that we are being lured and enticed. Here, James uses a metaphor from hunting and fishing. Anybody hunt or fish in the room? We have any hunters or fishers? Okay, nice, nice. My grandfather was a big fisherman. He grew up in Sturgeon Bay in Wisconsin, And so growing up, he'd come out to Southern California. We would fish a lot. I remember being in his garage as a young man and seeing just all the tackle boxes with all of the little lures. He had so many lures. I asked him at one point, why do you have so many lures? He said, I have a lure for every fish I hope to catch. 
I said, Grandpa, that's not a good investment. You could buy a fish for cheaper. And he just looked at me and said, you're obviously not a fisherman. I, I did some, some research, and when I say research, I mean I googled uh, fishing lures. And I think it's worth kind of noting just the, the ridiculousness of some of the fishing lures out there. The number one fishing lure, according to Field and Stream, is this, the curly tail grub. Do you look at that and go, oh, okay. Some of you right now are like, I got that one, and you're excited about the next ones that I'm going to mention. Number four on the list, the original gets it. That one was named by a Texan. This one gets it. You got fish in the water and going gets it. That was more Cajun than Texan, really. <laughs> this next one's great. The Terminator T1 spinnerbait. <laughs> Look at that thing. Look at that thing. And then my personal favorite on the list, number 22, the Swedish pimple. It's a horrible, horrible name. Some, we look at that thing and we go, come on, come on. None of us look at that and go, I would give my life for that. But a fish looks at that. The right fish looks at that and goes, come on. And would give its life for it. We may look at other people's areas of temptation and go, how do they fall into that? How do they fall into that seeking of power how do they fall into that lust? How do they fall into just wanting money and things? And we judge other people in their areas of temptation. But don't miss that you have your area of temptation. There's something that entices you. There's something that sets a trap. It's out there. And it's our own desire. It's customized to our own needs. And James goes from this hunting and fishing metaphor and he switches it. He switches it to something different. He switches it to a generations metaphor. In verse 15, it says this, then desire, when it is conceived, give, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In my home right now, we have a, a two and a half year old and a four-month-old, and I value your prayers. Thank you. When the two-year-old was coming, when my son was going to be born a few years ago, I was super into, like, just the development of a human. Like, how do they go from, like, this to this to, like, how does that happen? And I read this book called Wonder Weeks that talks about these things that the brain turns on at different times. And this book, of course, today, books also have an app. And so I downloaded the app, and the app would notify me when my son's brain was turning on, when at that point in development, it's not like it's synced into his brain, but just at that age, it would, it would say, yeah, this is when they're understanding events. This is when their, their brain is starting to understand different things. It was a trip because I'd be sitting there, my phone would buzz, I'd get the notification from the app, and my son would start crying, it was just, I'm like, whoa, this thing is good. It knew the phases. When my daughter was born, I deleted the app. I'm just like, the app is the problem. I just don't need to know about this. When it comes to temptation, it's worth knowing the phases, how we go from desire to death. 
It's worth understanding the beats of that so that you can begin to look and honestly assess and say, yeah, I've got a problem here. The four phases of temptation are this. Phase one is desire. It starts here. There's something that allures you. There's something that looks good. The next phase is deception. Often that desire, sometimes that desire is pure evil. But often that desire is a good, healthy, God-given desire that we get deceived into thinking can be fulfilled in a way that doesn't honor God. Desire and then deception. Core truths often just misaligned and tweaked. We see that from the beginning in Genesis when Satan tempts Adam and Eve. We see it there. Next, phase three is design. We start designing. We start thinking, well, maybe it could look like this. Sometimes this happens very quickly, but sometimes these phases of temptation happen over weeks and months. People don't wake up one day and say, I want to have an affair. They don't wake up one day and say, I want to embezzle money out of my company. These phases of temptation roll through. And the final phase is disobedience. Disobedience. And disobedience, disobeying God, sin, disobeying God in thought, word, action, and attitude, that, when fully grown, gives birth to death. And we can't miss that. So how do we apply this? What do we do if this is true about us? Bring it into the light. You need to be living in community. I'm not talking about donut time on the patio after this, like, hey, can I tell you what I'm really tempted by? <laughs> it's not what I'm talking about. But are there a couple people in your community and in your church that know your temptations? Are there people that you can text message and say, hey, I'm really getting tempted right now. Why do we feel this acceptance of texting people when the fallout happens, when we miss the opportunity to speak to it and to bring it into the light of community when temptation is happening. Who are your people? Who are those three people that you don't just sit? Accountability is not just waiting for somebody to call you and say, hey, how are you doing? You doing okay? They're the people that you can call, that you can reach out to. And is temptation a part of that when you're going through those seasons where there's just more and more challenges and you feel it? Let us put words on it in our community. Let us live in community. And I love that James in the midst of this just kind of hitting us hard, just saying, hey, this is your flesh. You've got to deal with this. In verse 16, I love that it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. There's a message of kindness here. You see, we have to you have to understand your flesh, but you also have to understand the Father. You have to understand the Father. Understand the Father. This whole section speaks to a disconnect in our understanding of the Father. It says in verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation 
or shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift. We only understand good because of the good of God. We have an amazing God and we need to dwell on understanding who he is. And when it says coming down, you know, we talked about how temptation was continuous. Guess what? The gifts that are coming down from him are continuous as well. He continues to bless. He's called here with this ancient Hebrew title, the father of lights. The father of lights, just speaking to this relationship. Speaking to this relationship. Psalm 36.9 says, in your light do we see light. He cares for us. And I love the next part. In a world that feels like it's changing so fast, our God has no variation, no change, no shadow. He is consistent. It says in Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. We can rely completely on him. He's not going to change. So how do we apply this? We need to consistently put before you the fact that you have a loving father that is blessing you and loves you and is giving you good gifts. It says in Psalm 119 at verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Some of you forget the goodness of the Father because you just aren't in the word. You are so up to date with sports. You know that moment when you've hit the loop on ESPN. You know it. You, there are so many editions of SportsCenter. When you've seen that top 10 three times, it hasn't changed. You've watched your particular news channel a lot. They've shown the same footage. They've shown you what he or she said, but you keep watching it. And yet we say that we grow bored. We just grow weary of reading the Bible. We want to hear the same things in the world over and over and over again, but we don't want to hear about the amazing God that we have. The inspired word speaks clearly. Maybe in your feed, maybe in your life, you just need to spend some more time in God's word and have before you this picture of this loving God, this father of lights. Understand your flesh. Understand the father. And finally, understand our future. Because it says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, God willed that if you have a relationship with him, he willed that. It says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And he has brought us forth from death to life he did that by the word of truth, the good news that is the gospel. He has transformed us. We have been justified. We have been declared righteous by him. And we are in this process of him sanctifying us 
making him, us holy, making us into his image. You are different. You are different. Do you have flesh? Yes. But you are different. I love the story of Augustine of Hippo, who at one point, he lived a very worldly life, embracing the passions of the flesh. And his conversion at age 33, he radically changed his life. And some years later, he was walking down the street and a woman that he had lived with outside of wedlock saw him and she called to him, but he didn't answer. And she ran up to him. She said, Augustine, it is I. And he said, yes, I know, but it is not I. Think about that story. Yes, I know the relationship that we had, but I have been transformed. I am a new creation. The scripture says here in verse 18 that we are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You, living a life, honoring God today, is a glimpse for people of heaven. The angels peer in to see you experiencing grace. They're blown away by it. When we get to be a first fruit of heaven, what an amazing gift. So when we're facing temptation, may we understand our flesh, understand your flesh, understand that you have temptation, but understand that you have an amazing father and understand your future. Understand our future, those of us that have a relationship with him. We get to spend heaven with him. Maybe you need to look a little bit past your 